The following program contains disturbing content that may be in settings and situations similar to your own. Discretion is advised. America's heartland, flyover country, shaking dice at the cafe for morning coffee, crop prices and rainfall, a day's work for a day's pay, business conducted on a handshake, where a man is as good as his word, church socials and town team baseball. But as the sun sets on this piece of Americana, there is no immunity from the darkness. There are things dare not spoken and thoughts recessed in the corner of a man's mind, masked by the roar of a summer thunderstorm, hidden in the silence of winter snow, yet peering from the darkness in the shadows of the Midwest. Do you think uh, Nelson actually committed that crime? Yes, of course I do. Um, no, he he uh, he admitted everything and, and told us how he did it and how to get to where he did it. Everything just fit the things that he knew that nobody else knew. It has been 35 years since those strange circumstances brought Leroy Nelson into the Smith County Sheriff's Office. Those same circumstances ultimately closed the nine-year-old Fairbolt County cold case involving our young Jane Doe. But if we look back now, 35 years removed, was our Jane Doe's murder solved or would it best be called resolved? On this episode, we are going to step back and examine some of the statements and circumstances surrounding Robert Nelson that led to his Minnesota convictions. Welcome to Shadows of the Midwest, Season 1, Secrets of County Ditch Number 5, Episode 5, Solved or Resolved. The murder of our Jane Doe had no suspects and no substantive leads prior to that 1988 phone call from Smith County detectives. When presented with a man who had an inside knowledge who ultimately confessed to the crime, authorities really had no choice but to prosecute. There was no need to investigate further. Today, with 35 years in hindsight, we'll examine some of the circumstances and statements. Was the right man in prison, or is the killer or killers still out there? The first year and a half that Nelson was in custody, he went from a dreamlike possibility of murder to a graphic final statement to Detective Jerry Cabe, which you heard in its entirety on our last episode. If you haven't yet listened to episode four, I encourage you to go back and do it now, then join us. And now, we're going to go back and review and examine some of those statements that Nelson made to Jerry Cabe in that final interview. Sunday night, I was out east of Blue Earth and uh, parked up on the north side of the Bryceland Exchange on I-90. I was parked off the off the uh, freeway on the uh, road that goes off to the north, and I was maybe a block away from the the freeway interchange where I could kind of watch traffic, but I wasn't 
You wouldn't notice the police car there. Do you recall the intersecting road there? North of Bracey? No. I recall that to the north it's gravel and to the south it's pavement. Okay. And that's, uh, I don't remember the road number. If it's if it's the Braceland Road, it'd be, what, 263? Does that sound right? 253? I don't even, don't even remember anymore, Jeff. Sure, 53. But it's gravel to the north and pavement to the Braceland Exchange. Sure. Or the Braceland Turnoff. Anyway, it's probably about 9.30 at night. All I know is, that it, you know, it's, it's like... Uh, 9.30 at night or so, it's completely dark, and uh, it's before, you know, like the 11 o'clock coffee break time, so that's about approximately 9.30 is, is what I'm thinking. And uh, I saw a van, I remember it to be dark colored, I think it was blue. And it would have been in the middle, middle 70s Ford van. Drove up, stopped at the stop sign, and sat there for a little while. It was westbound on Interstate 90. And at the time, it would have been off on the exit ramp at the stop sign. And... It sat there for a few seconds, and the side door opened, and a gal got out. I believe there were two other people in the front of the van. I'm like, you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm half a block or a block north of there, so I'm I'm a little ways north where I, I can see, but, you know, it's not real clear. There isn't a lot that has changed on Exit 134 since 1980. The county road that runs over I-90 still turns to gravel about a quarter mile to the north. There is one thing that has changed, though. There are lights. As late as 2015, Exit 134 was not lighted. When Nelson stated he sat in complete darkness, it wouldn't have been an exaggeration. The sun set at 8.45 on the evening in question, the time Nelson gave was approximately 9.30. What was exaggerated was a vivid description he gave of the late model blue Ford van, two occupants, and a woman exiting the side door. In the best scenario, he would have seen vague silhouettes. And thinking about it a bit further, the van had taken off before the woman could have walked forward into the headlights. It would have been a stretch to even say that Nelson knew it was a woman. Now, I posted some pictures of the area on the Shadows of the Midwest Facebook page if you'd like to go and see the intersection for yourself. Now, when you're on there, feel free to comment and like the page, and it'll help keep up on all the latest information on Shadows of the Midwest. And uh, I asked her for some identification, and she produced some kind of identification. I just remember it being a a plastic identification card. Now the name that I'd given you before I believe is correct. I'm just about dead positive on the first name. That's probably the only name I would have remembered to talk to her, you know, to carry on a conversation. 
but uh, can you tell me the name again, Bob? It was either Catherine or Kathleen, as I remember, or either that or, or something very very similar to it. But that's the name that pops in my mind. The other names that I gave you for a middle name was Marie, and the last name was Jurgensen or Jorgensen. I'd be, you know, I looked at this identification one time for a little while, maybe nine years ago. The first name I'm just about positive of, and the other names, you know, are, are the names that I don't know where I picked them out of my memory, but. <coughs> I'm pretty sure on that first name, and relatively sure of the other two names. Did she have any noticeable brogue to her, like uh, uh, um, from the east or uh, south, or from what I remember of talking to her, uh, there wasn't any real noticeable accent. Maybe it sounded like Midwest, or maybe just kind of east, but not. Not like a real harsh uh, New York accent or Boston accent or anything like that. It was, of course, Midwest includes a lot of territory, but it was kind of a Midwestern voice, maybe with a little Eastern accent. I don't know if that would. I don't know where that would put her. Now Nelson presents the name Kathleen or Catherine uh, for a first name and a last name of Jurgensen or Jorgensen. In a previous statement, he mentions Jacobson as a possible last name. Uh, believe it or not, there was a Jacobson woman that went missing from the Green Bay area. However, it was after the discovery of the body, and the woman was later located. As we will cover later, our Jane Doe's name was none of those mentioned, and in fact, nothing even remotely similar. And as they made notes of uh, accents... It might be interesting to know that our Jane Doe came from Texas. As we headed west on Interstate 90 towards Blue Earth, uh, and we uh, continued west on Interstate 90 and got off at the Blue Earth Exchange. And headed south in towards town, and then I cut back east on the gravel. <clears throat> I hadn't traveled those roads for nine years, I guess it was, until we went over some of them here a couple months ago. But uh, That's uh, basically the gravel road that goes east of about where the Dairy Queen is now. It yeah. wasn't there before, right? It is now. Yeah, the... Well, that road was there before. I'd traveled. The road was there, but the Dairy Queen wasn't. Right? Uh, I think it was at that time. Oh, okay. okay. I think it was. It may have been. Yeah. I think it was brand new. But anyway, that the gravel road that I turned back east on was on the was at the, where the Dairy Queen is right now, and uh, traveled east, crossed over the freeway to the north, and traveled east again on some more gravel. Ended up about. I suppose, what, eight or nine miles east of Blue Earth, uh, on the north side of the freeway, on a gravel road, just driving. And uh, I was looking for a quiet place, you know, a place out of the way, because 
the conversation by then is uh, she had led me to believe that that she would cooperate with with uh, the advances that I, I was making. It was kind of a two-way street. She was talking uh, as to lead me on, and I was eating it up and and uh, wanted to take advantage of the situation. Anyway, we got out east a few miles, and I drove off in a field approach. Again, we're on the north side of the freeway on a gravel road that parallels the freeway about a half mile off the freeway. Turned into a field approach and uh, drove back in the field to a place where we were probably 100 yards, 150 yards north of the freeway. And it's, uh, it's alongside a drainage ditch at that point. There's a telephone pole it's a telephone pole, it's a, a pole, a light pole, a telephone pole right there. And it's got some kind of a box on it, like uh, an electrical box of some kind. And I remember that being in the background. Now, I know that I'm not the smartest guy, but I did try to follow these directions on Google Earth and found myself immediately lost. I've also examined the general area and cannot find any parcel that meets the criteria they gave for the crime scene. Authorities also fail to mention the said location in any of the reports. I would think that the township and section would be mentioned and documented at the very least. I also thought it was interesting how Nelson stated that he was uh, looking at landmarks and such when they drove back from the airport to Blue Earth with the deputies. Now, if you've tried following these directions, and had success, by all means, please reach out to me. Uh, I'd love to hear where it is. And uh, you can do that through our Facebook page, through the YouTube comments, or you can email me at shadowsofthemidwest at gmail.com. She had on a jacket, a t-shirt, and blue jeans. At that point, I had her take the jacket off and as I was kind of messing with the t-shirt, she, I won't say she panicked, but she realized that, you know, she, I realized and she realized, I guess, that she either changed her mind or what didn't mean it in the first place or whatever. And uh, at that point, I, uh, sort of forced her to uh, take off the t-shirt and that's when she began to uh, indicate that she wasn't going to go through with any sexual advances. At that point and at that time then I handcuffed her with her hand, hands behind her back <clears throat> and caused her to perform oral sex on me. And uh, by this time she's uh, very upset. When when she was handcuffed when you was having oral sex did did uh, 
Did you uh, climax in her mouth? Yes. The information in this clip is not only pertinent to the confession, it also provides a setup, if you will, for what occurs after. At this time, Nelson states that he has removed the young woman's shirt, he now has her handcuffed behind her back, and he forces her to perform oral sex on him. A detective cabe asks Nelson if he copulated during the sexual assault, in which he acknowledges that he did. You'll see in the autopsy documents that there is no semen found anywhere on or in the body. The external exam portion of the autopsy states the following. Examination of the soft tissues overlying the dorsal aspect of the thorax, as well as the left labium majora and the lateral aspects of the left lower extremity in the thigh and knee region reveal areas of purplish discoloration that become confluent with one another. End of excerpt. Due to time and partial submersion, the right side of the body experienced an accelerated rate of decomposition. With the bruising that remained on the left side, you could speculate that sexual assault had occurred at some point before death. I found a pliers, I think it was in the trunk of the car. Again, this is a borrowed car, but everybody's got a toolbox with you know, pliers and a screwdriver and some tools in it. I found a pliers and I, I threatened to pull off or pull out her fingernails if she didn't shut up. And that only led to more abuse and screaming and carrying on. And like I said, something inside me You hear it all the time, the phrase, something inside me snapped, but all the frustration and all the anger, and plus all the, all that I had done in the last few minutes that she was right about, you know, that, that uh, what I did is yanked out, I believe, two or three fingernails to show her I meant business. And I realized that it had gone so far, so fast, you know, in a few minutes' time. In five minutes' time, it had gone from stepping out of the car and, and, and uh, making sexual advances to her all the way to the point of, of uh, these threats and actually pulling out a fingernail. I guess I don't really understand how pulling out somebody's fingernails is going to stop them from turning you in for doing something almost equally as heinous. In this statement, Nelson states that he pulled out two or three fingernails. The medical examiner's report states that all of the fingernails were removed. Now, stepping back to the very beginning of the episode, when we hear Sheriff Fletcher talking about the fingernail information being withheld, if you recall early on in this statement, both uh, Detective Cabe and Nelson refer to the 11 o'clock coffee break. It's not uncommon, especially in rural areas, that officers from different agencies uh, will meet up at a gas station or a cafe. Now, this particular case would be unusual for any area, but 
even more so for someplace like Faribault County. I imagine that there were several lengthy conversations about it, and, and being that this is with a group of peers, the fingernail information was more than likely shared at some point. And that all happened in a, in a few minutes' time. And I was in so deep and so far, and the anger and the hurt and, and all the fear that was inside of me that she was going to do exactly what she said, and she's right. She would have been right in everything she said. All that kind of snapped, and I grabbed the, the cord or the string or whatever it was, a, the pull string, the drawstring in the bottom of her jacket, which was an army-type field jacket, you know, with a drawstring bottom. I pulled that out, tied it around her neck from behind, and this, again, this happened in just a couple of seconds' time. Was she still handcuffed, Bob? Yes still handcuffed, on her knees, on the ground. And I stood behind her. I was, had been behind her to, you know, with the, the pliers to pull the fingernail. <coughs> because her hands were handcuffed behind her. And, uh, I took that rope and, and put it around her neck. It was knotted in the front, you know, with the... Uh, I've shown you on paper before. I, I believe it was knotted through twice. It may have been once, but it was... Uh, I didn't think about how I was knotting the rope. I just simply, you know, made a loop in the rope and put it around her neck, had one end in each hand, and strangled her from behind. And uh, I remember the anger and the emotion and all that, that, man, it like built up in almost like out of nowhere in just a minute or two, it was, it was crazy. And, uh, I remember strangling her, and uh, the hatred, and the... Man, I hated myself, I hated her, I hated everything at that moment. Was she trying to fight you quite a bit? Uh, <clears throat> did you easily overpower her? Well, like I said, she was on her knees. Mm -hmm. I had her handcuffs behind her back. I didn't have the handcuffs on super tight. No, I mean, they weren't really clamped down real tight. So, I mean, there weren't, there weren't going to be big marks all over her. I mean, I, I knew better than that. And, uh, she wasn't all that, you know, she wasn't uh, a midget, but she wasn't all that big. It'd be five, six, 115, 120 pounds, somewhere in there. And I had the advantage in several different ways. It happened, there wasn't really much time for a struggle, Jerry. It just, in a minute or two's time, it went from, from having her perform 
sex on me until she was dead was only a couple of minutes, maybe not even that. I mean, it just from the time that the commotion started where she was going to get me and get my job and all this stuff until she was dead was a couple minutes time. I mean, it, it wasn't very long. And this is from Jane Doe's autopsy, a section entitled Neck Organs. A layer-wise dissection of the neck is accompanied with no evidence of hemorrhage into the subcutaneous tissue or the strap muscles bilaterally. Examination of the larynx prior to the removal reveals no evidence of hemorrhages to be present. Upon removal of the thyroid and the cricoid cartilages are found to be intact with no evidence of fracture or hemorrhage. The cartilaginous rings of the trachea are again intact with no evidence of fracture or hemorrhage. The thyroid membrane is intact, as is the hyoid bone. No evidence of fracture of the hyoid bone can be appreciated. The mucosal surface of the larynx shows evidence of postmortem decomposition with reddish-brown changes being noted. No lines of demarcation can be appreciated in the mucosal surface. No foreign bodies obstruct the superior, mid, or inferior compartments of the larynx and the false and true vocal cords are found to be intact. No foreign bodies obstruct the tracheal lumen, nor are there any foreign bodies obstructing the mainstream bronchia bilaterally. Despite the degree of postmortem decomposition that has affected the soft tissue of the neck region, as well as the muscles, a constriction-like effect can be appreciated in the region of the previously described ligature placement on the external examination. End of quote. Determined cause of death, ligature, strangulation. In his statement, Nelson recounts the strangulations of being very violent and taking only moments to achieve death. But as we see in the autopsy report, there's absolutely no sign of trauma of any kind, especially a violent strangulation. Uh, marks from the ligature did leave indentations in the neck, but in this state of decomposition and bloating, uh, anyone would be hard-pressed to say just how much pressure this put on the neck. Now one could say that the ligature acted to restrict blood flow and, and uh, caused her to pass out and would eventually cause death. Uh, while it's very feasible, the short amount of time Nelson claims that he did this uh, would not have caused death. When she was giving you the oral sex, were you standing up then and she yes. was underneath? I was standing up and she was underneath. Did she have most of her clothes off then? Or? Jacket was off. T-shirt was off. And... Uh, she was wearing blue jeans, and I believe I had those down around her knees. The uh, at that point, of course, now she's dead, and I. Uh, took the handcuffs off and pulled the rest of her clothes off, which would have been just, you know, the blue jeans. And was she wearing underpants? As I remember, she was not wearing a brassiere. She was not wearing any underwear. And I don't think she was wearing any shoes. 
she had a purse. It was uh, leather, medium size, kind of a baggy thing. Closed on the top. It was dark brown or black. Uh, I think I've drawn a picture of it, so you know you know what it looks like, sort of. Uh, I don't remember if it had a strap or not. My impression was that it did not have a strap on it. It was just a, a purse. And uh, anyway, rolled her off into the ditch, the uh, drainage ditch. <coughs> Were you fairly close to the ditch? Yeah, just 10, 15 feet away, maybe. Not even that. Remember there was water in the ditch, but it wasn't that much. But I mean, that wasn't, you know, we were about 100 yards from the freeway, and I, and, uh, there was no, there was no houses in sight, no, no roads in sight, in fact, where the, where that place is, you can't see any road except the freeway, and there's a fence in between that and the freeway. <coughs> Now with the young woman now deceased, Nelson states he removed the rest of her clothing and the handcuffs. The clothes were placed in a white garbage bag and later disposed of, and the purse was kept separate. If his memory was correct, he brought the bag of clothes to a landfill and stated in the past the purse was kept hidden in the barn at his residence. Now let's talk about those handcuffs. The medical examiner took a very close look at the victim's hands. Uh, noting the missing fingernails and also what appeared to be indentations from missing jewelry. The one thing that is not mentioned is marks or bruising from the handcuffs. Nelson did state that he left them loose as to not leave marks. Now for a moment, put yourself in the position of Jane Doe. Your hands are behind your back and somebody starts pulling out fingernails. Better yet, you are being strangled. Your natural reaction is going to be to bring your hands to your throat to free your airway. There should have been very distinctive marks left on her wrists. I, uh, I picked up her clothes and put them in a pile. And I did not leave the clothes there or the purse. And I believe I put the clothes just in a bundle and, and the purse in the back of the in the trunk of the squad car. I remember putting the, I'm pretty sure I remember putting the clothes in a white plastic garbage bag. In other words, I didn't I did not throw them in a dumpster or in a wayside rest or anything like that. I, I remember the trunk of the squad car being open and putting them in a white plastic garbage bag. And that might have been later after I got home that night. You know, because first of all, it's a borrowed car. Secondly, I didn't want that stuff left in, in the car. And, and so uh, I remember putting the clothes in a white plastic garbage bag. And I don't believe I put the purse in the same bag. The clothes I ended up eventually hauling out to the 
I believe they went out to the dumps to the landfill. Okay, we changed the tape to the other side, uh, side B. Uh, go ahead, Ben. Well, like I was saying, if, if I had the first impression, if I had seen her bald, shaved-headed woman, I probably would have run some kind of a check on her. Just you know that uh, that's weird out here in this part of the country, and and uh, I don't know if if things would have happened the way they were. I'm you know I'm. I'm not giving excuses. I'm just saying that if, if I'd have noticed at first that the lady was bald, uh, that's an oddity, and, and I would have probably run a license check on her. And of course, once you once you call in a name on somebody, you don't go off and bump them off. You don't go off and murder them. You know, you don't do that. <laughs> so <clears throat> I really believe that she had on a wig because that's my first impression is that that she was. Just a young lady, you know, like I said, average height, 5'6", 120, 125 pounds, uh, medium length brown or reddish brown hair, you know, shoulder length uh, or above, a little above the shoulder, collar length, and, and uh, the baldness would have stood out in my mind like a, like a neon light. So that's why I think it didn't, you know, nothing, it didn't happen that I noticed that right away. I believe she was wearing a wig and she was, uh, it didn't come up in, you know, in conversation as to where she was from or where she was going other than just what I remember being, uh, uh, she was headed out west for some visits some friends and she'd Obviously, she'd come from somewhere east of where we were. One session back when uh, when you were hypnotized, uh, you remember that when uh, Jack uh, hypnotized you? Yeah. I I think at that time you recalled uh, that the wig came off at the altercation by the ditch. Uh, does yeah. that kind of come back to you now? I think that's what happened. Is I had no idea that was a wig until. About the time where I got her out of the car, and in the earlier part of, of this statement, you know, I said she got out of the car and, and uh, began to kind of back off from what we had been talking about. You know, she was uh, uh, backing out, sort of, from what I thought might be going to happen. And what I'm what I'm speaking about is backing off from what. had uh, alluded to or, or hinted at some kind of a uh, sexual reward or whatever you want to use. Anyway, when I'd had her take her jacket off, that wasn't a problem yet, but I think when, when she finally started to kind of put up a struggle that she wasn't going to go through with this really happening, uh, that's when I pulled her T-shirt off, and I think that's when her, you know, when her wig would have popped off. Either that or right after that. Uh, and you know, her wig would have ended up on the ground or someplace. <clears throat> Do you remember loading up the wig with the rest of her clothes and putting it in the trunk? Yeah, I, I put that up, put that in with the clothes. I picked it up.
and that was discarded with the rest of the clothes and the jacket uh, and, and uh, those type of things other than the person. Yeah. The wig. It seems that prior to this, the young woman's shaved head seems to have uh, been forgotten. Why? Of course, she had been wearing a wig. Nelson stated that if he had come across a bald woman, he would have surely called her in. It's almost funny how at this point in the interview, they, they backtrack and make accommodations for this wig. What I also find stunning is that at no point in the investigation do they consider the possibility of the shaved head as part of the crime. They thought she could have been Hare Krishna. And when you combine a shaved head with the extracted fingernails, torture is what comes to mind. Before we conclude, it would be wrong not to talk about Dr. Michael McGee, the Ramsey County medical examiner that performed the autopsy on Jane Doe. Earlier in 2023, two murder convictions where McGee gave crucial testimony were overturned. In 2021, the death penalty was removed from the conviction of Drew Shadeen's murderer, Alfonso Rodriguez. In that case, a federal federal judge stated that McGee was guessing on the stand and his testimony was unreliable, misleading, and inaccurate. The Ramsey County Attorney's Office is re-examining 71 cases where McGee gave uh, testimony that was considered critical to the convictions. McGee's consulting company has been paid over $9 million by 19 counties since 2011, and he's drawn at least $700,000 a year from Ramsey County. On the next episode of Shadows of the Midwest, Secrets of County Ditch Number 5, we're going to hear from Robert Nelson. You can find additional information about this episode as well as keeping up to date on all the latest news on our Facebook page, Shadows of the Midwest. Make sure to like and comment. You can also find information on our YouTube channel of the same name. Once again, I thank you for listening to Shadows of the Midwest. Music provided by Matt Hutchinson and the Hutchinson Effect. Copyright 2023, Just Past Nowhere Productions, LLC. Thank you.